that end. It's to bring him glory and honor. And when we remain silent, when we keep the truth to ourselves, right, the biggest loss is in, in, in how we are displaying that grace. Now, that doesn't mean God needs us to display his grace, but it's the means he's chosen, right? He's chosen the church. He's chosen to use the church for the fulfillment, the carrying out of his redemptive work. And so it will happen with or without you and your involvement. Right? But when you miss out on that, you, you, do, or you, you miss that opportunity to display his grace in your life. And so I want, I want to know that more fully in my own life. I want to display that grace and, and his mercy as often as I can. And so maybe the, the point of this, this afternoon is simply to reflect more deeply upon this truth. Um, to ask the Lord to reveal any areas of, of doubt in my mind about this. And then to let that have its full impact so that others would see it. I was talking to another pastor uh, this week, and he had, they had the opportunity. Uh, uh, they had been approached by um, Verizon or AT&T, one of them, about setting up a cell tower on their property. They had, had to give up a certain amount of space, um, which they had. They have room for that um, from they, the company to the tune of fifteen to $20,000 a year. Um, and, and that would just carry on as long as they kept that tower active on their property. But of course, that kind of construction required approval from the city and from uh, the community needed to be informed. Well, when they had their first kind of meeting, town hall meeting, several neighbors were vehemently opposed to, the, to this construction taking place. And it was pretty clear to the pastor pretty early on that that's not going to be uh, what they want. That's not the witness they want to have to their neighbors, to their community, is to ignore all of their requests and say, hey, look, we need the money. But at the same time, they had a desire to use that money for mercy ministry. They were supporting um, widows and, and women in need, like, like um, single mothers who who did not have the support that they needed. And so they had plans to use that money every month, really. And, and so what he did was he wrote a letter to the community, to these neighbors, and just explained, this was what we were thinking. We did not anticipate it having this kind of negative backlash, uh, but because it has, we, we've decided not why we, we were proposing um, the, the cell tower, but we, we just want you to know why we, we were proposing um, this or why we were interested in doing this. Well, several neighbors showed up at the church and actually donated money since then in order to see the work that they're doing continue. They've also begun attending um, worship service, several of the neighbors who had never been before because of the the witness that, that they received in this letter, the impact that it had upon them. And I, I just found that to be deeply encouraging. These were people that were hostile to the church. In fact, the reason why they were probably so upset about it wasn't so much that it 
was going to be a blight in their neighborhood, but because it was benefiting and supporting this church property that they could care nothing about. They had no idea the kind of ministry that was taking place um, through that church. And so this gave an opportunity to be a light. And I think that's, that's what this should be a reminder to us of. Right? It's not just a, a doctrine that we can tuck away, that we can save for that rainy day where we need to be encouraged by God's grace, but it's an opportunity to be reminded of that he's given us that grace in order to display that grace, to display the immeasurable Ephesians from prison in Rome, probably around AD 60, to several different churches in the region of Ephesus. You can read Acts 19 to see the, the description of the, his ministry in that region. And from prison, Paul was rejoicing in the riches of Christ's grace that had been poured out upon them. Think about that. He's in prison in Rome writing about the riches of Christ's grace, not in his life, not just simply reflecting upon himself, but reflecting upon the impact that grace has had in the lives of the churches in Ephesus. And of course, we see the thanksgiving that he gives in, in most of his letters. Um, and Ephesus was no exception. So Paul never tires of declaring the glory of the gospel. We should never tire as believers of hearing the gospel declared, allowing it to work deeper into our own hearts. Uh, the first three chapters of Ephesians are the indicative. It's who we are in Christ, what he has done for us. And then the latter half, chapters four through six, are the implications of that truth or the imperatives, that's the commands. What now should we do? Uh, those implications include unity in the church, a call for a new life, living a new life of holiness, walking in love, living as spouses, as parents, as children and masters and servants. He, he covers everything, covers every sphere of life and, and, and all the various individuals within the church. And he encourages them in the latter half of Ephesians. But the first half is all about who you are, just reminding them who they are in Christ. So he's reminded them of their spiritual blessings that in verse 3, look at that with me, chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be God the Father, or the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has not withheld any good gift from us because of his son. He's spoken in verse 8 of the riches of his grace. He's reminded them of their inheritance in verse 11, in verse 13 of the sealing of that inheritance by the Holy Spirit when they believed the gospel. And then verses 15 through 23 is his, his thankful prayer. He, he thanks God on behalf or, or for them and prays for their wisdom and knowledge of God's work in Christ, that they would continue to grow and mature in their own understanding of Christ's redemptive work. So chapter 2 begins with all of that in the background, and it's one long sentence. These verses, it's, it, in the Greek, it's one long sentence where the main verb of that sentence does not appear until verse 5. It's, it's the phrase, made alive. It's one word in the Greek, that's the main word, that, or the main verb that's central to this passage. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter that Paul wrote. 
to the churches in Ephesus and for the encouragement that it is to us, to the church today. We need to be reminded of these truths. We need to be reminded of, of what you have done for us. Um, the unmerited favor that we have all received through Christ. And so, Lord, help us not to just be convinced of this truth, but to rejoice in it, to rest in it, and to apply it to our lives in such a way that we would delight and desire to display that truth wherever we go. And may you be glorified in all of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we begin with the first three verses here, two, one through three, and it's this idea that of where we were before Christ, that we were dead in sin. No, yeah, chapter two, verses one through three. It's okay. It's much better than I could read it. So the question at this point is, what is our human condition from birth? Right, how much moral ability does fallen man possess? Well, it's clear here, right? It's... it's it's not really debatable. You were dead. What is the ability of a dead person? That's your ability as a fallen man. That's your ability from birth, spiritually speaking. It's clear he's not thinking in terms of them being physically dead. He'll say you walked as sons of disobedience, right? It's you walked in sin. You're actually literally dead man, dead men walking. I think that's your zombies. Right? That's, that's the point. You're spiritually dead. Pelagianism taught that man was born neutral and could choose to be righteous or wicked. That was what Pelagius taught. That you're born neutral and you can choose either to be a good person or a bad person. And why anyone would choose to be a bad person is beyond me, but that is what Pelagius taught. Semi-Pelagianism is 
is a version that we more often hear. Um, and I would say it's defined as, as the recognition that man is bent or broken and they move towards sin. They're tainted by sin. They're affected by the fall, but their will is still free. And so while they have a, a tendency to move in that direction, they still have that freedom to choose whether they would be wicked or righteous. They have the freedom to reject that bent that they have. They, can, they cannot go after their heart's desire. That would be semi-Pelagianism. And um, the idea is that you have to cooperate with God in order to be saved. Right, God can get you so far, but you got to kind of finish it. And it might even be really far. Like they might even agree that, you have, that God will do 99% of the work, but that 1% is still has to be up to you. It's your cooperation. And so this is where you come, you, you hear some of the analogies that we often hear in evangelistic crusades today or from the pulpit of semi-Pelagian preachers. They might say something like this, you're sick and you're dying and you need medicine. And the gospel is that medicine. It can heal you. All right, but all I can do is, is place it right at your lips. And I, can, I can place it as close as, as I can to you, but you've got to open your mouth. You've got to take it. You've got to want it. You've got to receive it. That's one faulty analogy. Another one is that you're drowning. You're out there in the ocean, you're drowning, and you're, you're sinking, maybe. And you're about to go under for good. But just as you're about to be lost forever, a life preserver is thrown to you. But of course, that life preserver is not just going to automatically rescue you. You have to reach out and grab it. You have to hold on to it. That if you don't do that, then, then you will drown. Even even though I've done everything I could to save you. That's the impression many have of God offering salvation. Right? That, he, that it's there for the taking if you just receive it. Right? If you just open your mouth, if you just grab hold of that life preserver. But the picture here is that you're, you're dead. You're actually in the coffin. You're not on your sickbed anymore. You're well past that. In fact, you're not just in the coffin in the funeral home, you're buried. You're gone, spiritually speaking. You're not just drowning, you're at the bottom of the ocean. You need to be rescued, you need to be made alive. So these analogies are clearly inconsistent with what we find here in Ephesians 2. This idea that you're dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And there's the, the next thing I, I want to consider, that you're not only dead in sin, but, but you're enslaved to that sin. You, you, wa- you once walked in that sin. You walked under its power. You lived according to sin's guidance and direction. You followed its course. The fo- you followed the course of this world, you followed the devil. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you once 
were enslaved to sin, you were spiritually dead to the things of God, and you were sons of disobedience. And he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. This is like the, the closing refrain we saw this morning in, in Judges. Right? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You were living by your passions, living among the sons of disobedience in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. Whatever we could think about, whatever our, our physical bodies desired, we we did. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And that's who we once were. We were hostile to God. We were, we were enemies of God. We didn't necessarily think in those terms. We didn't think of ourselves being at war with God, but that was the spiritual reality. We were not living for him. Everything we did was sinful. We simply ignored him altogether. And it says, because of that, we're condemned. We were by nature children of wrath. And, it, and the idea that this is by nature is, is significant. It's, it's the idea that we're born in this position. We're born with this condition. And we're justly deserving of God's wrath as unregenerate. So there was a time when all we knew was sin, when every thought, word, and deed we took was an act of defiance against God. In other words, we were totally depraved. And that word kind of, or that phrase, needs to be defined a little bit because it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. We could be worse than we, we, we could have been worse than we were, right, at that time, apart from Christ. We could have been much worse. But it does mean that every part of us was infected by sin. Every part of us was affected by the fall, including our will. So Pelagius was wrong. Semi-Pelagians are wrong. There's not even a, a part, a little part of us that's inclined towards righteousness apart from Christ. Now that doesn't, so, so think about that for a minute. How does that, that fit with, with um, philanthropists, with people who, who do good things? They, they use their resources, their money to, to make the world a better place. That's their goal. That's their desire. They want to give because they have the resources to do it. Well, ultimately, if it's not done in faith, and if it's not done for the glory of God, then it is done out of a sinful motive. And so God can use it for good, but it doesn't change the fact that it's still sinful. It still brings upon the person even greater condemnation and guilt. And so when you reflect upon your past, prior to acknowledging Christ as Lord in your own life, what fills your mind? Do you feel regret? 
Do you feel shame for so many years that were given to following the course of this world? Do you experience a proper grief and even a, a hatred for your sin? Is that growing and increasing, knowing that it still, it still resides there? It still has a tendency to ensnare you, right? To be a temptation for you. And yet it no longer has the control that it once had. You're no longer enslaved to it. You're no longer entrapped by it. Right? You've been set free. But when you reflect upon that, do you, do you see more areas of sin that maybe you didn't notice before because of your growth in Christ? And are you dying more and more to that lifestyle that once controlled you? Right? That is what sanctification means. It's a growing, it's a dying more and more to sin and a living for God. You come to one of the greatest phrases in all scripture, but God. That was you. We once were depraved. We once were defined in those ways, but God has made us alive with Christ. That's the central truth of Reformed theology, that God does the work. We have salvation because of God's grace. And it explains who he is, right? That he's rich in mercy. And it's because of the great love with which he loved us. The only reason any of us were saved is because of God's rich mercy and love towards us. It's all because of him. Have you given him thanks for that? Or do you, do you remember that mercy and love that's been poured out upon you? Or do you rest in that? Do you appreciate it and enjoy it? He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Again, Colossians chapter 3 tells us, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seek things at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is why it's so important to reflect upon this idea that Christ, that we've been made alive with Christ. Right? It's, it's so that we would consider these things, that we would set our minds on the things above, not on things in the earth. That it would begin to impact our perspective of the world and of our own future and of our neighbor and our family and the church. Right? It should change the way we look at everything. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. We are waiting for him to return. So we've been made alive with Christ even when we were dead. He raised us up and seated us with Christ in heaven. Notice the tense that it's given there as well. We've already been raised up with him. It's a past tense. You've been raised up. We, we don't feel that currently, right? We, we don't think this is heaven. We're not presently at the right hand of the Father. 
but it says we've been seated with Christ in the heaven. Although that's a, clearly a future concept, it is so certain that Paul speaks of it as having been completed. We can, we can trust that God will complete that work that he began. In Romans 5, 9 through 10 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And if we've been saved already, we, we will certainly be saved in the future. So the benefits Christ received in his resurrection and ascension have now been granted to us because of our union with Christ. And why does he do that? That's where he concludes, verses 7 through 10. It's for God to show his immeasurable grace and mercy. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Your life in Christ is meant to display the riches of God's grace. Maybe a, a number of things. Maybe you get a, a, a lot of different emotions when you think about that. Maybe you sense how much your life it does not seem to display the grace of God, whether that's in your family, towards your coworkers, towards your neighbors. Are you convinced of this? <clears throat> Are you allowing your life to display the grace of God's work in your life? Have you been, if you've been saved by his grace, then he delights desi and desires to show that grace through your life, through the transforming work that he's had in your life. And then he says very clearly there in verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. You've been saved by grace through faith, not of works. Again, as you think about the evidence of God's grace, you have to remember that grace implies the opposite of work. It's unmerited favor. You're not working to receive grace. Grace is, is given to you. It's granted to you. The Roman Catholic Church taught that baptism was the instrumental cause of our justification. That, that baptism is what causes your justification, which is why if, if you have a child and you're unable to get to the church right away, they'll come to you right away and make sure that that child gets baptized because they believe it has a justifying impact. But the Reformers taught that faith is that instrumental cause. That what, what the tool that God uses to bring grace or to bring salvation is faith. It's the instrumental cause. And what is Paul say here about faith. It too is a gift from God. 
so that you can't boast. Why did he save you and not your neighbor? Well, it's not because of anything in you. You have nothing to boast over your neighbor. It is the faith that has been given to you as a gift. Faith is the root and works are the fruit of our salvation. And that's where he concludes we are his workmanship. We've been created for good works. And so another very important motto of the Reformation is this. Justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Right? It's never just faith. It's, it's a faith that leads to works, a faith that leads to fruit. Faith is the, is the, the root, works are the fruit. So God has prepared good works for us to do. Works are not the, the ground of our justification. They're the consequence of it. They're the result of your justification. Paul hints here at what he will elaborate in chapters 4 through 6. What are the consequences of all of this that he's describing in chapters 1 through 3? It's what he expresses in chapters 4 through 6. It's the implications. It's the imperatives. How now shall you live? So as the workmanship of a, of a merciful and loving God, he has promised to accomplish his will through us. We participate in his plan of redemption. That's the privilege we have, right, of, of being part of that display of his immeasurable grace. And we can only carry that work out as we live by faith. We've been saved by faith and we continue now to walk by faith. So that's why I say it's God gives life through his son to display the riches of his grace. And we, can, we continue to display the riches of that grace by faith. Your testimony of being dead and made alive with Christ should have an impact upon every relationship in your life. Right, whether you're single or married, whether you work at home, or outside of the home, whether you're speaking of relationships within the church or in your neighborhood. Right? Our lives have been impacted by the grace that we've received. And so I, I think I want to remind you of, of something that Ed Hartman said when he preached during our particularization service. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a great sentiment, and I, I'm sure I'm not going to say it Perfectly, I didn't look up the wording that he used, but the idea was this. The deeper the gospel goes inward, the wider will be its reach outward. The deeper the gospel goes inside, into your own heart, the wider will be its reach outward. And, and I think this passage is evidence of that. Right? As we continue to reflect upon and meditate upon the mercy that we've received, the riches that have been poured out upon us, in Christ Jesus, we won't be able to help but display that to others. All right, when that happens, we won't remain silent. It will fill our mind. It will fill our conversations throughout the week. You'll display the riches of God's grace, and, and you'll do the good works that he prepared beforehand for you to do. It's inevitable. So let's give him the glory for that. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity we've had to reflect upon 